I give greetings and blessings to you from Sunnyside Baptist Church, way south of here, yet still in the city. The, my fellow elders there gathered this morning and have been praying for you, that the Lord would bless you this morning. And now I'd like to add my prayer to theirs. Let's go to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you for gathering us and providing for us that we could be here in this place at this time to hear your word. We pray that you would do your work in such a way that the truth of your word would find a hearty amen in our lives, in our affections, in our understanding, in our actions, in everything about us. We pray that you would sanctify us, conform us to the image of your Son. And we ask for these graces that you would help us to see your Son, Jesus Christ, here in your word. That as we look at him in your word, we would look like him in this world. And we pray these things for his sake. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we'll be reading one verse, Acts chapter 9, verse 31. It's a verse that sums up all that has been going on thus far in the book and anticipates all the good things that are yet to come. Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. When we think of the book of Acts, we sometimes see in the subtitle of the book, the Acts of the Apostles. Interestingly, when you begin to read through the book of Acts, you find that it wasn't just the apostles who were acting, but there were other saints, there were deacons, and there were church members, and there were run-of-the-mill people, even without names. And they were not the only ones who were taking action. Sometimes it was the enemy taking action. Sometimes we find evil villains like Herod taking actions and Saul of Tarsus before he was converted. As we consider the term or the name Acts, whose Acts are we beholding in this book? The Acts of God, right? These are the Acts of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. These are the Acts of the risen Lord Jesus Christ to establish His church, to encourage His church, and to expand His church in such a way that the world was never the same again. In fact, the world was turned upside down. So these are the acts of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, having purchased all of the blessings that we need for salvation by His blood, bringing about the new covenant through His death, bringing the power and the authority of that new covenant in His resurrection from the dead and ascension to the right hand of the Father where He reigns today. And by assuring us of his presence through the sending forth of the Holy Spirit, who is the sign of the new covenant. These are the acts of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And things are going so smoothly. If you've read the book of Acts, you know that it is one crisis after another. And just about the time that everything goes well. As they crest upon the wave of blessings, here comes a trough of difficulties. Over and over and again, we see this pattern. And it is not a a 
indictment of the church, and it is not an indictment of the faithfulness of God. This is how the Lord works. Surprisingly, His kingdom expands like leaven in a lump of dough. Surprisingly, His kingdom works like a mustard seed that grows into a tree, not just a run-of-the-mill shrub. He works surprisingly, and we see that throughout the book of Acts. Now, this morning, our task is a wondrous one. As we read verse 31, here we rejoice. We rejoice in the evidence, the fruitfulness of the acts of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. But it is not a passive rejoicing. It isn't a sit back and observe and just be happy about the situation that we see back then. But this is a kind of rejoicing that has an impact on how we see things, how we value things, how we do things. We will receive, by God's grace, from this passage, direction for our prayers. How ought we to pray? How does Sunnyside Baptist Church pray for heritage? How does heritage pray for Sunnyside? How does each one of us as church members pray for the flock that God has brought us to? We will receive development of our praise. You know, if you're praising God for the same things in the same way that you were 10 years ago, repentance is in order. Right? We, we need to grow in what we appreciate about God. We need to grow in what we rejoice in from the Word of God. We will also receive some sort of determination of our progress. Are we making any progress? Are we heading in the right direction? It's not a matter of counting nickels and noses. We know that. How do we know we're pleasing Jesus? What does it look like when a church is going from, from good to better on into the best? How do we know that? We can receive all of that from this verse here this morning, and I guarantee you we are not putting too much upon this single verse. I invite you, if you are able, to stand with me as we read God's holy word This is the word of our Lord Jesus Christ, by his Holy Spirit, through his servant Luke. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Why not? Since I'm sure that's something that you do on a daily basis deep familiarity with using wineskins and making new wine. Jesus said you don't put new wine into old wineskins because if you do that, the new wine as it ferments and as it expands and as the the gases release from from the work of the decomposing grapes will bring pressure against that old wineskin, which is inflexible now, not like it was when it was first made. 
And eventually, that new wine, simply by doing what it does, will crack that old wineskin. And all of that wine will come pouring out. What a great description for the early chapters of the book of Acts. What did they accuse the disciples at the day of Pentecost? They are full of what? New wine. No, they are half right. Not that kind of new wine, but a different kind of new wine. And what do we see happening as the new wine begins to fill up that old covenant wineskin of old covenant Jerusalem? When you're reading through Acts, the cracks begin to form. The tension grows chapter after chapter. Peter is preaching, and he is then he and John are arrested. The apostles are threatened. They're arrested again. They're even beaten. And then tensions grow to such a point that Saul of Tarsus is unleashed and he is breathing murder and threats against the church. And in the providence of God, in the act of the risen Lord Jesus, the shepherd sends his flock out by means of persecution. The new covenant wine begins to run through all the cracks of that old covenant wineskin, and it's spreading all over the place. In Acts chapter 6, we hear about the Hellenists. Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans and an Ethiopian. Soon in Acts, you will hear about the nations. These are the acts of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. When you read about the apostles, they didn't come up with these ideas. They weren't saying, now we will shift our attention to the Hellenists. No, they were forced to deal with that. Now we will consider the Samaritans. No, they were forced to deal with that. It's not really their acts. It's the acts of Christ, who here in chapter 9, lately did the miracle of turning a wolf into a sheepdog. Saul of Tarsus goes from the biggest threat against the church to the biggest defender of the gospel. So what are we looking at here? We are looking at a wonderful, good, and wise shepherd. And verse 31 is summarizing for us the outcome of what Jesus has been doing from the right hand by the power of his Holy Spirit through the working of his word. That's what we're looking at. And it is an encouraging verse as well because we see unity in the verse, don't we? We see unity in the verse. Do you long for unity among Christians? Or is it a pipe dream we ought never to talk about? What would the shepherd want? I think it would be very discouraging to think about how we could have unity today. With so many different emphases, with so many different churches, so many different movements, so many different concerns and desires, it can be wearying every other year a new Big controversy. Well, what is the path towards unity? Well, take the question from today, flip it over and turn it sideways, and let me ask you this. What is our unity with the church that is talked about here in Acts 31? Can we have unity with them? Is there a unity there? 
Despite the huge historical time period, the gap, despite the cultural differences, despite the language differences, despite all the differences of concerns, do we have unity with the church described here in Acts 9.31? If we can find our unity with the church here in Acts 9.31, surely we can find our unity together today. Consider, first of all, their identity. Their identity is our identity We read, then the church, or then the churches, depending on your translation. Which one is it? Well, truly, they were one church, the body of Christ, and truly, they were individual churches. Here in a village, there in a town, more than one gathering in a large city like Jerusalem. Truly, they were a church singular, like that envisioned the mountain that cannot be touched in Hebrews 12. Truly, they were individual churches like those addressed in Revelation chapters 1 through 3. So, yes, they are one church. Yes, they are many churches. But what is their identity? This is the most vital, most important question we can ask is how are they identified? Here they are called the church or the churches. The first time that word is used in the book of Acts is chapter 5. At the tail end of the story of Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias and Sapphira killed, executed by Christ at the right hand for lying to the Holy Spirit. And what happens after that? Verse 11, Acts 5. So, because of that, great fear came upon all the church. There it is, first time it's used in the book of Acts. So, great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Look, there is the church and all those over here who heard those things. Two different groups. Do you see it? Verse 12, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. Here are the apostles. Here are all these other people. There's a parenthesis here now. It reads, And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. That's where the church was meeting in those days. Yet none of the rest dared join them. So here's the church gathering in Solomon's porch, huge courtroom, court, uh, courtyard where they are all meeting. Yet none of the rest, none of the rest of the people dared to join them. There's a separation but the people esteemed them highly. Verse 14, And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. There's a separation from and a separation to when we're talking about the church. There is both a holiness and a hope that distinguishes those who are in the church. Believers were added to the Lord. Now, when you believe... By God's grace, as we have sung here this morning, when you come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, He is my Savior. You make a pile of all of your bad deeds. You make a pile of all of your good deeds. You flee it all for Christ and Christ alone. He's my Savior. I hang everything on that one nail. You are in the Lord. You are part of the church. And then, when you're baptized... You become a member of a local church. But the identity is that of Christ. Who are we to our Lord? We are those whom he has died for upon the cross and raised for on the third day. Those for whom he intercedes at the right hand of the Father. Those for whom he is preparing a place. Those whom he expects to commune with for all of eternity and raise at the end of the world. Who are we to one another? We have to begin first with who we are in Christ, don't we? 
We don't begin with who we are to each other and then figure out how we relate to Christ. We begin with who we are in Christ, and then, only then can we understand how we are to relate to one another. And ultimately then, the third question, which is the third most important, not the second, not the first, who are we to the world? Who are we to the world? That is not the most important question. The world is watching, let them watch. Let them watch us unify and love one another in Christ. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. But we only understand that by our identity in Christ. Each church is of the church. Our identity is in Christ. There's no point in talking about church without beginning by talking about who Christ is and who we are in him. This is our identity. And what about their internationality? Their internationality is the same as our internationality. We read in the text that the churches were throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Judeans, we read about Judeans in Acts and about Hellenists and Galileans and Samaritans. And soon in the book of Acts, we'll read about Gentiles. These are nations? Oh, they're all part of the same region of the Roman Empire. Oh, yeah, they're nations. Nations are made along the lines that God has sovereignly drawn, not the boundaries that political science has drawn. When you read the table of nations in Genesis 10, it's a record of families and how big they get. And when you read about the families who gather in the plains of Shinar to rebel against their creator, to make for themselves a name rather than make him a name, to build the Tower of Babel and then their confusion by their languages... When you consider the amount of nations and the peril of the nations, then Genesis 12 just hits different. When we read the Lord's promise to Abram, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. Meaning what? A big family. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth? What families? Genesis 10 families. That's who? Well, that's a big promise. That's a big promise. Let's be biblical in our thinking about nations. Nations are not civil governments. We've been taught to name a nation, and we begin to list civil governments listed all around the world. Nations are not civil government. Civil government is a God-ordained institution, but it is not a nation. Nations, nations form civil governments. They adopt civil governments. They are subjected by civil governments. But the hope of the nations is Christ, the different families of the earth. There are more than one nation represented here. Did you know that? This is a very international church. We're for more than one nation. We belong to the American Republic, which is more or less an empire. But there are many, many nations. And Christ is the hope of all the nations. The seed of Abraham is the hope of the nations. And I say this, when nations are discipled, as we're told in the Great Commission, disciple all the nations, when nations are discipled, what happens? The world keeps on getting turned upside down. 
And all the different forms of society begin to be brought into submission to Jesus Christ and are changed by His grace so that from from the family to the federal, everything begins to change because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, God promised these blessings to the families of the earth, to the nations of the earth, and, and we see that the blessings and the cursings promised here in Genesis 12 are made manifest in Abram's seed. In Genesis 12, God says to Abram, go to a place that I will show you. In Genesis 22, 18, Genesis 22, he says, go to a place that I will show you. Interesting, isn't it? In Genesis 12, he says, go to a place that I will show you. And then he gives this promise about, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And then he says in Genesis 22, go to a place that I will show you. And then he says to Abraham, offer your son Isaac as a sacrifice. Abraham passes the test of faith, and then God says, because of this, in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, 18, because of Abraham's faith, he says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Well, that sounds familiar. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. We do not find the repudiation of nations, the elimination of nations, uh, the obfuscation of nations. We find that each nation God has set his love upon and his son dies upon the cross shedding his blood for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we see that their unity is not in the erasure of their differences, but in Christ. The blessing is in Christ. Galatians 3.16, Now to Abraham and his seed the promises were made. He does not say into seeds as of many, but of one to your seed who is Christ. Amen. Judeans, Galileans, Hellenists, Samaritans, the multiplicity of the Gentiles, the nations. Oh, we have many churches, but we're one church in Christ. Many churches often established upon, along tribal lines. Oh, I rejoice in that. I rejoice when our missionaries tell us about the translation of the New Testament into the language of the Palika people in the Ivory Coast and how this church is now planted and that church is now planted and that church is now planted. I rejoice in that. Those are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and we couldn't possibly understand each other. It'd be very difficult for us to relate to one another, but you know and I know that when you meet a fellow believer, no matter what language we speak, no matter what different concerns that we have from day to day, there is a unity and there is a love there by the Holy Spirit. Speaking of that, their interaction is our interaction. Their identity is our identity. Their internationality is our internationality. And their interaction is our interaction. Notice what was going on. They were having peace. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace. They had peace. Well, one reason they had peace was that Saul of Tarsus was no longer hunting them. Wow, that's a relief. We can take a deep breath. They also had peace because they were unified in Christ. So there was peace between their churches peace between the churches in Jerusalem and the churches in Samaria and the churches throughout Galilee. Peace between the churches and peace within each church. They were having peace, an ongoing peace. Peace concerning the externals. Peace concerning church to church. 
peace concerning what was going on inside their church. How could they have peace in their church, let alone with other churches? How could they have peace? Because of who they were in Christ. We have to begin there. Because of who we are in Christ. He is our unity. It's to Him that we gather. Psalm 133, 1-3 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down the edge of his garments, like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life evermore. Do you know that we're still looking to Mount Zion today? No, not that one. The one that cannot be touched, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 tells us that if we have come to Christ, we have come to Mount Zion, to a mountain that cannot be touched, to the church and assembly of the firstborn, whose blood speaks better things of Abel. Abel's blood cries out from the ground, is there any justice? Christ's blood cries out, it is finished. And we gather together in that unity, in that love, in that one mountain So we have peace. Isaiah pictures it this way, that the various nations that come up this mountain, they turn their their swords into plowshares. Why? Why are Bosnians and Serbs and Croats sharing communion in churches today in that war-torn area? Well, their swords are now plowshares. They are fellow laborers in the harvest. Do you see where our peace is? We enter by grace, not by race. This is the blessings of the new covenant. Biblical peace is more than the absence of conflict. It's not just a ceasefire. That's not real peace. Biblical peace is more than a ceasefire. It is the presence of communion. Biblical peace is more than the absence of conflict. I'm glad we're not fighting nowadays. It's the presence of communion, of right relationship with one another, with God and everything else that God gives to us. How do we have peace? It is Shiloh who brings shalom. It is the man of peace who brings peace. And shalom, what is peace? What does that look like? It looks like faith, hope, and love between the churches and the church members. How do we have peace with one another? Let me tell you one way to ensure that there will not be peace. If your aim is conflict, if your aim is is dissension within a church, within a family, any context you can think of, here's, here's one way to do it. Elevate another Savior. Elevate another Savior. Many people get excited about many different themes, but there is no other Savior. Church conflict comes from us trying to usurp the right hand of God by putting something or someone else up there at the right hand along with Christ. God forbid, instead of Christ. We look for saviors of all kinds. Oh, this, this, this person of history, if we would just do everything this person of history said and thought, then everything would be fine. Oh, here's a politician who's going to make everything right. He said so. So, you know, he said he would, so. Oh, this person, they have their theological ducks in a row. They're the ones who are going to fix us. 
oh, this person really knows how to build a church. That person will save us. No, there was only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one Savior. To hyphenate our identity, please don't do that. I'm a such and such Christian. I'm a such and such Christian. To hyphenate your identity in Christ is to shatter your interaction in Christ. As soon as you hyphenate your name, as soon as you hyphenate your identity, I'm a such and such Christian, then your ability to commune and be at peace with others who are bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus has been greatly compromised. Let us have peace with one another. Their interaction is ours, and their instruction is our instruction. Notice what's going on in verse 31 again. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. Edified. See this? What does this mean? We get our word edifice from that. The, the Greek word also is about construction. What did Jesus say? He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He's, he's about building. Well, lo, lo and behold, Jesus said in Matthew 21, verse 42, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone which, was the, which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in his eyes. What is he talking about? He is talking about the rebuilding of the temple, and where do you begin? You have to begin with the cornerstone. Who's the cornerstone? Christ is the cornerstone. Time and again, we are told in the New Testament that Christ is the cornerstone of the new temple. This is about temple construction. Just as the prophets said, so the son of David builds the temple and he gathers stones from the quarries of the nations and makes them a new people and a new temple unto God. 1 Peter 2.5, also you as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Temple constructions and the dimensions are just so big. This instruction that we're reading about, this edification, what is this? This is all about Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus, washing his bride with the water of his word. This is about him taking his word and doing his work in us. This, this edification, what does it look like? It looks like Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the church, taking up the word of God by the Spirit of God to reconstitute the image of God amongst the children of God. We are built up in Christ by His Word. This is the work of the Spirit. Jesus is not interested in whitewashing tombs. He is interested in building His church, in building the temple, and He is pleased to use us, to use one another to accomplish that work. Did you know that you are part of Christ's plan? Not just me, not just my brother, not just Brother Marty, not just my father, or anybody else who's been pastoring and teaching. It's not just some of us, but all of us. Christ is interested in using you to help build his church. Did you know that? So that the edification comes from all of us by one of us who is over us is Christ. Ephesians 4, 15-16. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. That's where we're heading. We're going to be maturing up into his stature. From whom, from him, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, you and I, 
according to the effective working by which every part, you and I, does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You are a vital part in Christ's work to build the church through his word. So, their, their instruction is our instruction. Their illumination is our illumination. Notice verse 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. A way of translating this is that they were being walked. It's a word that comes out as the passive, not the active. They were walking, sure, but they were being walked. (laughs) They were being shown where to walk, how to walk. They were being directed by who else than the Good Shepherd. We are being walked in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? We know that it is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of understanding, the beginning of wisdom. The the fear of the Lord brings a health and life to us. It helps us to, to flee and depart from evil. But what is the fear of the Lord? Simply to think of Him first and to think of Him most. To think of Him first and think of Him most. Always in orbit around Him and His glory. And without a high reverence for Christ, how can any of the former observations that we've made be true? Being walked in the fear of the Lord, being in orbit around Christ because of His weightiness, His his authority, and, and His brilliance, what does that look like? It means that, first of all, we are submitted to His authority as much as the moon is tied to the earth. We are submitted to His authority, and this word is the scepter of Christ's authority in our lives today. This is His scepter. We are to be submitted to His authority, number one, two, suffused by His light. So, well, you know, I know that's His authority, but you know, there's a thousand different interpretations on every verse. So how can anybody know what's true? Christ is the light of the world. Thus, he is the light of the word. Read your Bibles in light of who he is. We will find our unity in him, in him alone. Being walked in the fear of the Lord means submitting to his authority, being suffused by his light, and doing all we do in service of his name. Not making a name for ourselves, as they did in the plains of Shinar, but making much of his name. Boasting in him. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the eternal Word who took on flesh, the light of the world, born of a virgin, righteous in his life before the face of God, anointed by the Holy Spirit, God of very God, man of very man. For us and for our salvation he died on the cross as the Lamb of God and took away the sins of the world. He rose from the dead the third day for our justification and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he has sent forth the Holy Spirit to make all things new by the preaching of the gospel of his kingdom. And he reigns until all his enemies are placed as a footstool for his feet and he will return to raise the dead and judge mankind. As the light of the world, he is the light of God's word. It is in his light that we see light. And their indwelling is our indwelling. 
We notice that they are not only being walked in the fear of the Lord, but they were being walked, notice, in the comfort, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' promise was given, I will not leave you orphans, I will send to you another comforter, another comforter, one who would come alongside and call us forward, meaning of the term. When I was in my undergraduate, right outside the uh, chapel was a big painting of Jesus and two of his disciples stopping by a bridge under a tree to talk. And as I paused and stared at the painting for a while, looking at the nuances of what the artist tried to say about the special nature of that moment, I had a longing for the same. A longing for the same. It's the kind of picture that you would desire, like, I want that to be true in my life as well. I want to be so close to my Savior that I may hear from him and understand what he is saying and to ask him my questions and so forth. Well, what is the promise that we've been given? Jesus says, it's a better thing if I go away. It's better for you if I go away. Because I'm going to send to you another comforter so that he could keep his promise. Oh, he's at the right hand of the Father. He was captured by the glory of God's cloud and his ascension, and we cannot see him. Much greater blessed are those Jesus says to Thomas, those who do not see and yet believe. But oh, he's, he's absent from us. No, he's not. He has sent to us his spirit so that he may keep his promise. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. How is he with us, each one of us, so near? By his spirit. There indwelling is our indwelling. The Spirit, He communes alongside of us and compels us to follow Jesus. He indwells us as we are the new covenant temple. He is the sign of the new covenant. As soon as Peter and his friends began to preach the gospel in languages they had never heard to an audience who greatly was greatly amazed, they wanted to know what in the world this was, and Peter said, well, this is what Joel said would happen when the new covenant came around. The sign of the new covenant, our assurance, our seal. By him we cry out, Abba, Father, and have the, the nearest and dearest relations in a day-to-day basis. And what of this Holy Spirit? We see him in the metaphor from John to Revelation as the water of eternal life. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, I have I have water that you need to drink from, a water of eternal life. A little bit later on in John 7, he declared the same thing to everybody who would hear. He declared that the Holy Spirit, in the form of the river of the water of life, would come springing forth out of those who would turn to Christ. Where is this river coming from? Oh, this water of life. All this abundance of of water flowing forth, where does he come from? He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And when you go and you look at the pictures, those beautiful, hope-filled pictures in Revelation, in chapter 22, where is the river? 
flowing forth from the throne where the Father and the Son are enthroned and the Spirit flows from that throne. Down that one street, the singular street in the New Jerusalem, the street of gold, the river flows from the throne, the street goes to the throne. What do you think the Holy Spirit is up to? He comes forth from the Father and the Son, and He regenerates and redeems and directs and guides and brings to our mind all that Christ has taught to draw us unto Christ. Their indwelling is our indwelling, and their increase is our increase. Verse 31 says, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. See that? They were multiplied. Christ is building his church, which means he is building his church's churches, that each church that belongs to his church, he is, he is building them in his way for his own glory. And when Jesus talks about his work, he talks about it in certain ways that always tell us it's sometimes silent, sometimes surprising, but there's always an increase. There's always something greater. Sometimes people, they look at passages like this in Acts chapter 9 or other passages in the New Testament, and they say, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could go back to a New Testament church? No, thank you. I like having a whole Bible in a language I can understand. I think hymnals are great in the development of the church's worship through the ages. It's wonderful. I think that having... Uh, more than just a handful of believers is wonderful. You know, they stopped counting an axe at a certain point. Here's 5,000 saved, another 3,000 saved, and then it just said a whole bunch. <laughs> Who can keep track? Christ can. He's keeping track, He knows the number. We keep on reading and they grow more and more and more numerous. You read through Acts and you see the church beginning to spread as the gospel is preached throughout all of the, uh, of the known world, the Roman Empire. But even when we come to the end of the book of Acts, how many Christians were there? We don't know. Way, way, way fewer than they are today. I don't want to go back. All those salvations... All those miracles, all that redemption, I don't want to go back. Isn't Jesus a good shepherd? Isn't he a great shepherd? We've we got to give him praise for being a good shepherd. Have we given him praise for the multiplication of his flock? Oh, Jacob was crafty when it came to fleecing Laban's flocks, but that's nothing compared to Jesus Christ. He bound the strong man and plundered him and has transferred us from the domain of darkness to his kingdom of light. He saves. He saves 
the noble Nicodemus, and the murderous Saul of Tarsus. He saves an adulteress from Samaria and a eunuch from Ethiopia. He saves priests and he saves prostitutes. He saves theologians and he saves tax collectors. He saves Jews and Gentiles, old and young, male and female, you and I. He saves, and He saves, and He saves. A multitude numbered beyond reckoning, a new song choir conducted for all of eternity. How about you? Are you one of the innumerable multitude? A number to Christ and a name? Is He your Savior? Is He your sovereign? Is He your shepherd? You know, attending the gathering of a local church, being a member of a local church is not salvation. Doing these things should be the fruit of salvation, uh, the testimony of what we believe in Jesus Christ. And still, there are many who would say, oh, I couldn't do without my church attendance. It's so good for me. It may be that when you think of church, it's like a, a most necessary spiritual and social vitamin. Without it, oh, my week's just not the same. But that is not the meaning of attendance of a church and membership in a church. You may be very blessed to be with the people of God, to receive the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit by extension as Christ's people live out the fruit of the Spirit around you. Well, what a blessing to be around the people of God, but that blessing is not salvific. You need more than a church. You need the head of the church. You need more than church membership. You need a belonging to Christ that only the Holy Spirit can bring about. You need the Savior. You need the Savior. Has He saved you? If you are, then you are of the church. And you are of His churches. You are one of the countless trophies of grace. In Him, by faith, we have our identity. His is a glory that crucifies all of our intersectionals. So we carry His name and His name alone. And He is working to resurrect His image in us by faith. And it is in love in Him that we have our peace and that we are shaped by His Word for His purposes, that we would continue to love one another. A righteous and sacrificial devotion in the name of Christ in which we will be for one another's benefit in the right way even if it costs us because of who Christ is. And with Him, in hope, by His Spirit, we are unfailingly led 
into the brightness of a future wherein it is always day and never night. These three, dearly beloved, these three, faith, love, and hope. You see, we are in unity with the church of Acts 9.31. Even though we live centuries upon centuries upon centuries distant from them. We are in unity with them because of who Christ is, despite the language difference, despite the cultural difference. We are in true unity with them. And they, as a part of the great cloud of witnesses, are in communion with Christ, with whom we are communion with Christ. If we can have unity with the church a couple thousand years ago, in the ancient Near East, oh, we can have unity together because Christ is our identity. No matter how international we might be, He is our instruction. We're being formed up into who He is. He's our interaction of peace, He's our illumination, showing us the meaning of God's Word and His Spirit indwells each one of us, and it is Him who gives us our increase. Some plow, some sow, some water. It is Christ who gives the increase. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the time that You've given to us together. Joy to serve my brothers and sisters here at Heritage, we pray that you would especially bless your work here and at Sunnyside and at our sister churches so that we would glorify and adore and worship your Son, Jesus Christ, that in him we would have our unity, our communion, and our joy. We pray these things for his sake. Amen.